Listener Production. Are you tired of not getting what you want in life? I used to feel the same until I learned the techniques of manifestation. Let me take you through step by step how I manifest so you can start living the life you had always dreamt for yourself. All the info on my Manifest Your Greatness course is in this episode's show notes or you can go to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Dr. Richard Harris is most well known as the anaesthetist who helped save the lives of the 12 boys trapped in the cave in Thailand. Today, he graces us for the second time on a life of greatness, but this time it's to talk about risk-taking. Richard does something for fun that for the rest of us would trigger about four phobias. In near darkness and tight spaces, underwater and deep underground, he crawls through unexplored caves in what's often described as the most dangerous sport in the world. So what can we learn from taking such risks? In the conversation that follows, we traverse embracing uncertainty, stepping out of your comfort zone and examining the delicate balance between fear and courage. People think that they can hide from risk. Well, that's even in this very, very safe time in which we live, especially in a privileged country like Australia for most of us. You know, we forget that the world is a dangerous place still and we need to occasionally test ourselves to build courage and resilience for the the hazards that lie ahead. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Richard Harris is the author of Alfie the Brave and his newest book, The Art of Risk. In its essence, this conversation highlights navigating the unknown and unleashing the power of courage in our own lives. My hope is that this conversation guides you on a path to conquer your own limitations and discover the untapped potential that lies within. Richard Harris, thank you for coming onto the podcast for a second time. It's great to be back, Sarah. Nice to see you. Obviously, people know you because you took one of the biggest risks that anyone can take, which is you went and found the 13 kids in the cave in Thailand, the soccer team, and you helped get them out, which was huge, an amazing, amazing achievement that they all came out safe. But we're here to talk about the idea of risk and what's involved in that because that's a really interesting topic and a book that you've now got out called The Art of Risk. And I just want to go back to the Thailand experience. I know we've obviously spoken about it on the last episode, but I want to cover that just a little bit where we start because that obviously was a huge risk that you took. And there's an interesting passage that you have in the book and it says that one of the people that was already in Thailand spoke to you on the phone. His name was Rick. And it says, Rick leveled with me. I can hear a little bit excited about coming over. This is when you were still obviously in Australia and they told you about what was happening in Thailand. But I just want to give you a word of caution. You're going to swim to the end of the cave. You'll meet the boys. 
and they'll seem quite healthy at the moment, quite smiley and happy, he said. And then you're going to turn around and leave and there's almost certainly no way we're going to get them out of that cave. If you're not prepared to sedate them, they're almost certainly going to die. So think about that before you rush in. Those were very prophetic words, as it turned out, because uh, that's exactly what happened. And I was excited, you know, when I, you know, I'd been watching this thing unfold for the previous seven to ten days, and I'd been seeing it in the news, and you know, I had this uh, preparation that I'd been making for many, many years, training to do something exactly like this. I've been working as the search and rescue officer in the Cave Diving Association in Australia. I'd been running training weekends uh, in Australia and New Zealand for a a scenario where one of us might be injured on the wrong side of a body of water underground and, and require to be dived out in an injured or ill state of some kind. But I never for a moment imagined that it was going to be children in a foreign country and that I was going to be asked to do something completely bizarre and unprecedented like anaesthetise them basically to bring them out. And, you know, the opportunity to go and help someone in a cave was, to me, uh, a huge opportunity, if I'm honest, because I had these skills and I had been training and I'd, I'd felt a bit like a fireman who'd never been to a fire. You know, I was, just, I was kind of raring to go and see if this stuff worked. But when Rick said to me that he wanted me to sedate the kids to bring them out, I went, whoa, hang on, that's, that's not what I'm signing up for. That's impossible, quite frankly. And I think I probably told you last time that that was not just a theoretical concern. I mean, you know, you don't have to be an anaesthetist or a cave diver to realise that that's only going to ever end one way and that is with the death of all those children. So when he said to me that, you know, if I'm not prepared to do that and I dive through the cave and see these kids, that was going to put me in a very difficult position because I would be leaving them behind to, to die. And that's exactly what happened. And... I remember surfacing in that chamber for the first time and seeing those children and it's just impossible to describe how courageous and accepting and resilient they seemed. You know, they weren't crying, they were just standing there smiling, chatting like a bunch of kids having an adventure. And yet in the back of my mind, you know, I was looking at them going, you're all essentially dead. There's no possible way that you're coming out of here. And that made the decision to try this thing, which I didn't believe could work, almost completely straightforward because if we didn't try that, well, I was literally turning my back on them and leaving them to die. So, you know, that made an impossible decision quite easy. You know, we just had to do something and that was the only thing. Mm. Something that I didn't know that we didn't touch on last time is that you wanted to bring out the healthiest, strongest boy first, but they chose who they thought, this is so divine. So they were in the cave choosing who they thought should go first based on who lived furthest away, who would have to get on their bicycle once they got out and cycle home, which is just so, I mean, they didn't even have an understanding of the fact that so many people were outside waiting for them and they definitely wouldn't have to go on their bikes and cycle home. So they chose who would go first and it wasn't the person that you wanted, which was the healthiest and strongest. It was literally the person that lived the furthest away from the cave. Yeah, and I didn't believe that was true when I first got told that that's the order that they came out with (laughs) because I completely lost track of who was who and I I thought, 
I'm sure that these four big lads were supposed to come first and, you know, that was explained to them. And when Craig and I and, and the British guys came back the next day and suddenly these kids are all coming down the hill, I mean, they're all dressed with their hoods on. I couldn't tell them apart. I'd only met them once briefly the day before. And so I completely lost track of who was who. And all of that was fine until the last day when suddenly the last boy to come down that hill, I was expecting to be quite a large kid and he turned out to be the smallest of all the boys, a boy mm. called Mark, who was only 29 kilograms. And wow. Jason Mallinson, the, the last British diver, and myself alone in there with this boy, and I suddenly realised the mask that we've got for him is not going to fit because we'd used up all the other decent masks for the previous four boys, in, including the coaches, it turned out. And the masks that we had, you know, we had two masks to choose from. One was a mask that was literally one and a half times the width of this boy's face. It was never going to keep the water out. And the second one was this little pink recreational diving mask which had very soft seals around it and it was folding up and collapsing on his face and didn't seem to be sealing at all well. So eventually the boy had been anaesthetised and the longer he stayed in the water, the colder he was going to get. Eventually I said to Jason, look, you're just going to have to go and, and good luck to you. And how Jason got that boy out alive mm. is a testament to Jason's skill and care with that child all the way out, you know, really holding him under his chin and protecting his face. Is that what he had to do? Very, very difficult dive, yeah. Wow. I mean, how did you feel giving up that little kid and thinking that he might not come out alive? Well, I guess I was getting used to it by then because that was the 13th of them and I'd had that sensation for the previous 12. So uh, it was unfortunately becoming a familiar sensation to be sending these boys off to what I assume would probably be their death and each day finding out that actually somehow this had miraculously worked. Yeah, I, I was getting used to being pessimistic and then more and more becoming secretly hoping that, you know, we, we would continue to be successful. But until that last one was out, I, I couldn't relax. And I suppose, like, as you said, the risk for you was if you don't bring them out, they're going to die. So if you bring them out and they die, well, they were going to kind of die anyway because that cave was going to flood. So you had that. But I wonder from your research and this new book you've got, why do you think some people are wired to take more risks than others? Wow, that's a huge question and I guess that's the whole uh, premise of the book is, well, maybe taking a step back. I, you know, for a long time people have said to me with my interest in, in what a lot of people consider to be a terrifying sport to be involved with, that is cave diving, people have often said to me, oh, you must be mad to do that. And I've never felt at all crazy. You know, I've felt like I'm very cautious actually and not at all courageous or, or brave. I just have found this thing that I love doing and I've grown to love it through very incremental exposure to it. I didn't leap into the sort of cave that I was faced with in Thailand the first day I took up cave diving in the 1980s. You know, there's no way I would have survived that sort of cave dive back when I started. But like all um, people who gain mastery over, a, you know, a small niche, activity, I guess, you, you do it very slowly and incrementally and you, you build up experience and you push your horizons further out each time you dive and you become a bit more accomplished until you look back and you can't believe how far you've come in that, in that activity or sport. And I think that's the same for all adventurers, whether you're a mountain climber or a caver or, or whatever activity you do. You don't go up Mount Everest on your first day out, you go up mm. the hills behind your, your house to start with and um, you build from there. 
I think you learn to be a risk taker as much as have a, a genetic predisposition to it. I mean, risk is a part of all of us. It's a, it's a mm. vital part of the human condition to take risks because, A, for our personal growth, unless we take a risk from the moment we're born and step outside our familiar surroundings, whether that's outside the, the little fence that mum and dad have put up around you to stop you wandering close to the to the fire or those sorts of things. And, and then when you're a school-age kid, you, you may, if you're lucky enough to ride your bike to school, you start, you know, maybe checking out some side streets on the way home with your little gang and going <laughs> to the park and um, not quite telling mum and dad what, what you're up to after school every day. And that's really important because yes. we need to push those little boundaries, whether they're geographical or um, emotional or, um, you know, the boundaries that have been put upon us by our carers, mm. we have to push against those boundaries constantly to grow and develop normally. And that's a vital part of life. And we forget that risk-taking is important to each and every one of us. And, and people think that they can hide from risk. Well, that's even in this very, very safe time uh, in which we live, especially in a privileged country like Australia for most of us. Um you know, we forget that the world is a dangerous place still and we need to occasionally test ourselves to build courage and resilience for the, the hazards that lie ahead. And even, you know, for people like ourselves, Sarah, life has still potentially got challenges in it, whether mm. it's, a, you know, a health crisis or a, a relationship crisis or a career crisis. There's always big potholes in the road. Absolutely. And if we've never had to face any kind of moral or physical hazards in our life, then you know, the first time there is a little speed hump, we're going we're gonna to fall at the first hurdle to use about eight metaphors in one sentence. <laughs> no, you're very correct. And I spoke to this really well-renowned psychiatrist, Bruce Perry, who wrote a book with Oprah, and it was all about it's where did you come from, always knowing that someone has a story basically. And he was talking about this exact thing and he said that with children let them walk in the rain. You don't have to have an umbrella up that whole time. Like to your point, the little incremental amount of putting them in situations that's not always comfortable allows them to become resilient. So then when they are faced with something in life, like you said, well, it doesn't matter how much money you have or how famous you are, you're still going to be come across those potholes. If you're not able to have some sort of experience in navigating them, then you're going to fall really deeply down them. What you're saying makes absolute sense. And that's why a book like this is so important for people to read, because obviously the people you're talking to have taken a lot of risk, even taking risks in moving jobs or financial things, or there's that great saying, nothing ever came from a comfort zone. And I do believe that to be true because I've seen it in my own life that taking these little risks has made me end up in a better place. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, just to look at one of the people in the book that I interviewed, a guy called Heath Jamison who was in Afghanistan as a, um, a commando. Mm. And uh, Heath has become a very close friend of mine since uh, we first met. We were involved and still are involved in a charity called Operation Flinders which takes disaffected kids out into the bush for a bit of wilderness therapy, I guess, and um, pretty tough week for them. You know, they have to carry everything on their back for eight days and sleep rough and we prepare all their own food around a fire. And uh, for many of these kids, they've never been outside the city. They come from sometimes incredibly sad backgrounds mm. with all the horrors that, you know, can affect young people uh, sometimes from 
uh, a variety of backgrounds. And Heath has in some ways affected me as much as he affects these kids that we walk with. You know, he, he has shown me how it is important to go out of your way to be uncomfortable whenever the opportunity arises. And, you know, I think through his military training, but also just his inherent robustness, he has never shirked away from doing difficult things. And it's so obvious in him what a resilient guy he is and Mm. the way he can share that resilience with other people is overwhelmingly impressive. Um, Just I'll give you one little example. I dropped him at the airport after our last walk and he's got these big bags that he's carrying and um, I said, do you want me to grab you a trolley? And he said, no, mate, I'll um, I'll carry my bags up the stairs up to the um, check-in. I went, you sure? I'll I'll grab you a trolley. He said, no, I like to do stuff like this because it just reminds me Whenever I do something uncomfortable, it just makes the rest of the day seem easier. Just little tiny oh, things like I that. Love he just that. every opportunity, he could either take the escalator or he'd take the stairs. You know which one he's going to yeah. do. Just those little things. Just if you constantly think about life in those terms, just challenge yourself at every opportunity. You'll find how quickly you become more resilient, more yeah. robust, more courageous for when you need it. It's like putting money in the bank. Yeah, I remember you and I kind of had a similar thing when I started public speaking. I was a bit like, oh, this is full on. And I remember you had the same experience because you were obviously catapulted into the spotlight from being an anaesthetist to suddenly next minute, bang, you're in the front of every paper and having to speak to so much media that it was nerve wracking for you as it was for me when I started giving talks many years ago. But the high after giving a talk just absolutely catapulted any of the nerves that I was feeling when I was about to give the speech. Now, I absolutely love public speaking. Imagine I had just been too scared and I'd never done it. And I spoke at Very Special Kids the other day. And I think like, what an absolute privilege to talk with those people. But imagine I had chosen not to do that because I was too scared. It's such a funny thing when we choose to stay in that comfort zone. Yeah, we do this thing on the walk, actually, you know, and you'd be familiar with it, I'm sure. You know, you look at your comfort zone, your stretch zone and your fear zone and then yes. we say, you know, let, let we draw a couple of lines in the sand literally and say, okay, stand where you would stand if you thought about reading a book. Would that be comfortable? Would that be a stretch for you? Would that terrify you? And you know, most people will go into their comfort zone. What about reading a book out to the class or to 50 people? Most people fly towards the fear zone. And, you know, then you think about a lot of different activities and people, you know, some people go one way, some people go the other way, depending on what their background is and what they're comfortable with. But there's no question, you know, the most learning occurs when you're in that stretch zone, when mm. you're just a bit anxious about stuff or a little bit fearful about stuff. That's where you find out what you really are like and, and, and where you develop and learn and become more comfortable with things that are a bit scary. And for me, the public speaking was just as you described. And it sounds like you've gone one step further than me. I'm not quite completely relaxed about it yet, but it is massively satisfying when you see your message making an impact mm. on the crowd and then people come up to you afterwards and say, thank you for saying that or thank you for giving me permission to let my kids go and do this or um, I just think, well, if it's gotten through to one person in this room, that's incredibly satisfying Mm. to me. Maybe that's ego, I don't know. No, no, but I think it's like, you know, that idea of service and when you're giving back and then you see people have been affected by that and they're able to change their lives. I mean, that's the most satisfying thing I think anyone Mm. can feel is helping another on their journey. 
I want to talk about the most recent tourist submarine mission because that was obviously a risk that they took that did not end up well. Can you talk to us a bit about that? That was obviously the people that wanted to go see the Titanic. Well, that's another strange coincidence of things coming a bit of a circle for me personally because in 2019 my friend Craig, uh, who was in the rescue with me, a long-time friend and dive buddy, we were in the Bahamas cave diving and the, the local guy that we were diving with said, oh, there's an interesting um, project in town this week. Why don't we go and have a look? There's a mate of mine who's working on it. We went round there and Stockton Rush was there and the submersible uh, sitting on its submergible platform that it launches off. And I was actually in the Flinders Ranges on this um, charity walk that I've just described uh, during that week that this submersible was lost. So I didn't know anything about it until I got back late last week. And I flicked back through my phone trying to remember which submersible it was because I knew of the two others, the James Cameron one and another one, Victor Viscovo, who's got a submersible that's been to all the deepest parts of the ocean as well now. And I couldn't quite put my finger on this third operation. I knew it sounded familiar. But anyway, I flicked back through my phone and there's Stockton and Rush standing on the jetty uh, talking to us about this submersible that we wow. had a bit of a look over. And I remember saying to him, any chance of a, you know, a ride, we would have loved to have gone <laughs> out and, and gone down on in it, you know. Um, so, yeah, strange how these things come around again. But, look, obviously there's been some criticism about that operation and, and the safety or lack of safety margins that were built into the construction of that, that device. I, I am not able to comment on, on that mm. at all. I had this very brief passing encounter with, with the guy and I'm very sad this happened to him and, and the, uh, the crew. But what I would say is I can only admire people who are prepared to put their lives on the line to explore. And, you know, exploration of this planet has been occurring since time began, essentially. Um, certainly since conscious humans, you know, stepped out the back door and said, what's over the back of that hill or what's up the top of that mountain or what happens if we cross this ocean and find another land? You know, our, our history, whether it's Indigenous or, or Western history, is, is based on exploration by boats, large and small, um, and that has been the way of the human race. So it is part of our, our makeup to explore and want to see over the horizon. And these days, the final frontiers are underground in caves and in the deep ocean. And that's the only place essentially that you can't in some way see or image or perceive without going there and touching it or looking through a little perspex window outside at it. And, um, you know, I feel that draw, that pull um, every time I put my head underwater in a cave. I want to see where the cave goes and find something that no one's seen before. And I know a lot of other people around the world share that feeling and it's very, very addictive when you succeed at it. Mm. You know, the first time you find a bit of cave passage, however boring or however much it looks like any other bit of cave passage, the fact is that you're the first eyes on it and for their thereafter forever, that is kind of yours. You, you know, again, it's a bit of ego in a way but that desire to be the first is extraordinarily powerful. Once you get a taste for it, it's uh, potentially dangerously addictive in a way. Mm. And we touched on this a little bit when I last interviewed you. You talk about it in The Art of Risk, about when you and Craig went to get Agnes's body and how that almost ended up 
as being a disaster for you and Craig as well. Yeah, I mean, that was um, retrieving bodies in, in underwater caves is, is hazardous and not something to be undertaken lightly. Uh, that was the first time I'd been involved in doing that. And, you know, we learnt some valuable lessons about how to do that more safely uh, on that occasion. And it was particularly logistically and technically difficult to do uh, to recover Agnes's body. So um, that scenario actually informed Craig and I uh, quite a lot when it came to the Thai Cave Rescue. Um, the way we approached that was in many ways informed by that near accident that we had whilst we were recovering uh, Agnes from that cave. And the, less, the main lessons to be learned were that or you always need a very strong piece of rope through the cave where you're doing something like that because inevitably you get very task focused. I'm sure you can imagine you get pretty uh, caught up in the moment and you can very easily lose sight of things like navigation or air supplies and those sort of things because your mind is so full with the other work that you're doing you need to retain a lot of situational awareness that is hard to do sometimes under those conditions. So when it came to moving all those boys through equally difficult terrain in Thailand, you know, we had a few tricks up our sleeve that we'd learnt the hard way mm -hmm. uh, in Australia doing that recovery. Can you tell us what happened with Agnes? Yeah, so it took several days to actually get to Agnes and excavate the cave underwater to get her out because she was very small and also a very intrepid explorer. She would squeeze herself through tiny little places underwater that a lot of other people wouldn't have the courage to, to do. Um, and because of that, she'd been massively successful with her exploration. She'd found lots and lots of cave passages all around the world. I mean, she was extraordinarily good at what she did. But um, she was young and she made some errors of judgment. She broke some cardinal rules and... Um, yeah, unfortunately paid that ultimate price for that. And uh, I know she would be kicking herself now if, um, you know, if she could have her time again. She wouldn't have made those mistakes. What did she do? Well, she left one of her uh, gas supplies behind so that she could fit further into this little nook and cranny that she was trying to uh, move through to. So she immediately lost half, half of the time available mm -hmm. to her to solve the problem that she got herself into. And um, in the silt, she got looked like she got herself turned around and was trying to exit the cave in the wrong direction. She'd lost the line that she'd laid through there. So she was disorientated, unable to see, and um, only had half as much time, uh, half as much breathing gas to solve that problem. So if she'd had both her cylinders with her, maybe she would have been able to resolve it. Who knows? But anyway, so Craig uh, and myself and a couple of other guys had to essentially dig our way through to where she was. And then Craig and I did the final dive whereby um, I brought her out to where Craig was out in a bit of a, bit of a slightly larger part of the cave and then uh, we followed the, the line out through the last 50 metres or so of quite difficult, tight cave tunnel. Again, no visibility by this stage because it had been stirred up by our toing and froing. It was completely black in there. Yep. Oh my uh, gosh. Even with your lights on, there was just no way of seeing anything because the dust gets, the sediment gets stirred up as you as you grovel through those really tight places, especially wow. if they haven't been dived very much. Yeah. Yeah, so I was leading the way out um, with Agnes sort of being towed behind me and Craig behind her uh, looking after her feet. 
And what I didn't realise in that lack of visibility was that I'd just floated up off the floor slightly and my head had gone up into a tiny alcove in the ceiling. And so the first thing I knew was my head essentially bumped into the rock and I thought, well, there shouldn't be a dead end here because I knew I was in the right tunnel. And, of course, Craig, not being able to see what's going on either, just kept pushing from behind. So now I've got Agnes coming into this little pocket in the roof with me and um, I knew that I couldn't, you know, move forward. So I had to just push back against her and hope that Craig would, um, you know, understand that there was a problem and he had to reverse up and and take Agnes back with him, which he did. Um, And um, I managed to drop down onto the floor, relocate the tunnel and then head back out of the cave. It was a a frightening moment, not just because I felt that I was a bit stuck, but obviously having Agnes being pushed up into the little spot with me and Craig following as well, you know, if I'd become completely stuck, then then, uh, both Craig and I would have been in trouble. Okay, so how do you not panic in a situation like that? Is your heart not racing? How do you remember so many things and then when something happens that's a little bit not right, you don't lose sight of all the things that you're supposed to remember whilst you're also having a heart that might be beating faster than normal? Uh, Your heart is certainly starting to beat faster than normal. There's no way around that. And I think everybody, the most experienced cave diver, mountain climber, whatever in the world has a threshold where panic will follow. And panic in a situation like that essentially is certain death. Mm. If you start to panic, then you lose the ability to make good decisions, to problem solve, to rationally make any kind of escape plan. And so everything you do is kind of designed in that situation to try and calm yourself back down again because you feel the sense of control being lost. Um, It's almost like a physical thing that starts in the pit of your stomach and starts to come up. It's hard to describe, but I'm sure everyone has experienced it in an exam or something when mm. you read the, when you turn the page over, <laughs> over and you go, am I in the right subject? <laughs> you, know, you know that feeling, yes. that squirt of adrenaline when you go, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> I've, I've certainly had plenty of exams like that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so that's that real physical thing. And, mm. um, you know, when you get taught to cave dive, they teach you this mantra, which goes, stop, breathe, think, act. And having something like that to do when you feel that fear rising is actually very useful because it's firstly it's a practical thing that you can do. When you're losing control of everything else and you don't know what to do, you go, well, I've got this thing I can do. So you stop and you take a breath and you think and then you make a plan and you act. And I've used that quite a few times in cave diving, but I've also used it in medicine You know, being an anaesthetist, there's a lot of analogies with cave diving. You know, you're well-trained, you've got good equipment, you've got a clear plan, but occasionally, and very rarely, but occasionally things go wrong. And as long as you know what's going wrong and why it's going wrong, it's very easy to be calm because, you know, you're well-trained and you just follow your action plan. But really occasionally things are going wrong and you're not sure why and you can't work out what's happening. That's when you know, whether it's in anaesthesia or medicine or or cave diving, that's when you can start to get really scared. Mm. And having those sort of mantras to calm yourself down are very effective. So I feel like there's a really strong connection between those two disciplines. What's the most panicked you've ever been? Well, underwater, um, 
you know, I've had probably three or four occasions underwater in caves when I've felt that there's a really good chance I'm about to die in the next few minutes. And it's very hard not to feel the sense of panic when you start to believe that's the case. Mm. One thing I'll say for Agnes is that from what I could observe, it looked like she was problem solving right to the last breath. You know, she had emptied her scuba tank uh, that she had there. Looked like she was taking gear off, trying to fit out through the, the, the very narrow part of the cave. So she was doing everything in her power right to that last moment to to solve that problem and get herself out alive, which, you know, for a cave diver, that's kind of the ultimate respect I can I can mm. give someone to say that, you know, that it appears like she didn't panic. She just worked right to the end. So wow. very impressive lady. You write in your book, The Dedication, which I want to read. The book is dedicated to all the risk managers who were generous in sharing their stories and to the passionate group of cave explorers who I'm proud to call my friends. This is the important part. And of course, to Fiona, it is far easier to be the one at risk than to stay behind and worry about the risk taker. So Fiona's obviously your wife. (laughs) And um, I thought that was... It's so interesting and so nice that you write that. But how much of a strain has this all had on her? I mean, obviously she, I can imagine, was overjoyed when you brought all those kids out. But at the same time, every time you're going to do something of high risk, what kind of effect does that have on her and your kids? Yeah. Look, there's two parts to this. Firstly, there's no question that in our marriage, which has been 33 years shortly of of pretty much perfect bliss, you know. (laughs) We have such a fantastic relationship. I couldn't have hoped for a better soulmate in life and as close to being a perfect marriage I think we've got. But if there's been anything that has caused a strain on it, of course it has been exactly this. You know, she gets grey hairs every time I go on a on a significant expedition or when I'm when she knows I'm doing a deep or difficult dive. And that is a massive cost to her to be in this relationship. And for me, it's a huge source of guilt and worry as well. Mm. I feel in some ways like a, a gambling addict that knows I'm frittering away the family fortune in some way because every time I go out the door to do this essentially selfish pursuit, I know what it's doing to my wife and my children who, who no doubt worry about me. So how do you kind of find the right balance to fulfil the obligations you feel to yourself to be fulfilled in what you want out of life versus, you know, the selfish aspects of it and the damage that it could do to the people who love you and the ultimate damage that it would do if I actually did die in a cave? You know, that would be unforgivable to do that to my wife or or my children especially, I think, you know, although they're in their 20s now. I'm sure that would have a terrible effect on them. So it's a kind of a constant battle and I've spent a great deal of time thinking about it, a fair bit of time talking about it with Fiona, although in some ways we do play a bit of a game where it goes a bit unmentioned at times. Mm. Um, So it's a really difficult thing to find a balance in. Does she have strategies like coping when you're away to stop worrying or anything like that so it doesn't become more consuming for her? Yeah, she's got very good friends. She's quite social. She spends a lot of time with a small group of very tight 
girlfriends, um, you know, walking with them and all, all those sorts of things. And family, very important mm. to us. So, you know, I think she surrounds herself with happy, cheerful people while I'm away and, um, yeah. But, no, I mean, you're very um, perceptive, Sarah. This is a, a significant kind of uh, issue in the life of any adventurer. Absolutely. It's the same if anyone was in the Army or the Navy or, you know, you see that they're obviously always putting themselves forward to risk. So you think about the person left at home and you wonder how they are. So it's really interesting to hear how your wife copes with it all. Yeah, and you think about someone, you know, who works in a high-risk occupation, like a police person or or, um, a military person, as you say, and, um, you know, at least I only do this on the weekends occasionally. It's not (laughs) 9 to 5. It's true. Yeah, see, I'm I'm all right. (laughs) I wanted to talk about someone who's in a high-risk situation that you speak about in the book, which is Hugh Remington. And for those that don't know him, he is an Australian journalist and he, you know, is going to all the war zones around the world. And I wanted to talk about something really interesting that he says in the book. He says that what saved him from alcoholism, because he talks about that being a problem when he was younger, was that he had a job. He got this job as a journalist, which required responsibility. And I wasn't bored. What made me glum as a teenager was the prospect of a life that was boring. It just really stuck out to me because I remember very different situations, but I remember in my life having jobs that never fulfilled me and feeling really bored and a lot of my, you know, any sadness in life would come from feeling unfulfilled. And then when I got this job and could be of service, it was like there was no turning back. You know, it was the most fulfilling thing that I have ever done. Being in risk or not, I think that's such a pertinent thing that he talks about, about having something that gives you purpose in life. And if it means taking high risks, well, that doesn't matter if it's going to help other people or give you some sort of purpose and meaning. I think that's a great point. I grew up as a young boy who struggled to kind of find my place in the world and uh, I don't know whether that was a normal sort of adolescent experience but for me I just felt like I didn't fit in and I was terrible at sports and, you know, I wasn't in the teams or the the cool kids sort of thing and uh, I felt a bit lost until I realised that I had this passion for the ocean and initially it was just snorkelling and then it became scuba diving which became cave diving and so forth. And, you know, when I go around, I talk to young people, especially some of these disaffected kids who have had real struggles, usually because of, or almost entirely because of external forces, you know, um, lack of role models or abuse or, you know, other horrendous stuff that's going on in their lives. I find myself talking to them and, and just saying, look, if you find one thing in your life that you're passionate about, you're so much more fortunate than almost the majority of people maybe. It doesn't matter if it doesn't really pay well. If you love what you do, you're just so far in front. Mm. And I've been very lucky to have a job that I've loved and I've had this extracurricular activity that I've loved. So I've never really felt since I was around 20 or so that I've, I've had anything lacking in my life. And that's in some ways I think saved, saved me because, you know, in my mid to late teens I was... I was kind of starting to go off the rails a bit. I was getting in a lot of trouble at school, hanging out with uh, a bit of the rougher crowd at school and, you know, take, making some bad choices. 
I feel like I could have easily easily gone down down that path. Yeah. Um, you know, I was probably easily led, a bit immature. And I don't know, I just found this thing that I just love so much and, um, yeah, very lucky. So exactly what Hugh has said, if you feel like you've got a fulfilling existence, whether or not it's risky or not is kind of by the by. I think it's just an incredible privilege to have that um, and, and it can save you. You've got to be true to yourself and a happy self will make the people around you happy too, I'm sure. There's something really in that as well. Like, have you dared to like live your life, like actually live it? And I I know that we obviously have to be cautious about certain things, sure. But like, have you really lived? Living life is doing things that, as you mentioned, like are not comfortable sometimes because in those places of where we're not comfortable, we find that experience that we've never done before, the thrill of the chase, giving that speech, going to that different country, going through that alley to discover something else or whatever it may be, that's the things that when we reflect on life and I wonder like when you're on your deathbed, the things that you remember are those things, not the being in your comfort zone every Saturday night kind of sitting in and not wanting to do anything. You know, it's it's about going out and, and like really living yeah, you're right. You know, just um, what you were just saying reminds me again of these kids I was bushwalking with last week. And at the start of the walk, of course, you know, most of them have never been camping, most of them have never been outside the city. And suddenly they're in this massive wilderness in northern South Australia. It's, you know, it's quite bleak, it's very harsh, it's cold, and it was raining. And they're tough kids, so they let us know they're not happy, right? And, um, <laughs> And so we're coughing a bit of an earful from them and, you know, what are you doing to us? This is torture, you know, this is abuse. And I go, well, let's just start walking, see how we go, you know. And um, I promise you in a week's time you'll think this was hard but this was worthwhile. Mm. And I can tell you there were two or three kids in that group who were really struggling and really outspoken about their struggles and, you know, we're kind of, it it was pretty miserable for a while because they were really having a terrible time and really letting us know. But I can tell you on the last day, they were all sad to be going home. They Mm. were all so proud of themselves um, for what they'd achieved. They'd overcome all these real obstacles mentally and physically to get through this pretty tough week. And uh, they all left with a big smile on their face. And, uh, you know, it just reinforced to me that, you know, doing things that are hard, you know, the pain is short, but the memory of the achievement lasts for a very long time. Absolutely. And then it makes you want to then go and do the next thing that you might have been too scared to do. I remember when I was younger at school and for six months we had to live in the country and we would hike a lot and we lived away from home. We had to climb up this mountain called Mount Sterling. Like I don't remember much of my youth but I remember this about my time away and it was freezing and I was hating every moment of it. I was a young teenager and I didn't have any tissues and my nose was non-stop running and then we had to set up our tents and it was like on the top of the mountain and that's the only thing I remember basically about my whole time away in that six months. I remember a few other things but that is the biggest thing because I achieved that. I was able to accomplish what I wanted to at the time even though it wasn't a fun experience. The fact that you know that you did it then gives you that resilience to be able to do the next thing and the next thing and it makes you feel like such a a far more powerful person. I use my experiences all the time. Uh, I think I said before, it's like having money in the bank you can draw on 
when you're going out to do something that's a bit intimidating and, and you go to yourself, well, think about X, Y or Z that I've done in my life. Mm. That was far more prolonged, far more dangerous and far more uncomfortable than what I'm about to do now. So just, you know, get on with it. Yes. I remember when Craig and I were Australians of the Year, we went to this reception at the Governor-General's place in Canberra before the announcement was made and I was standing there talking to Peter Cosgrove, who's a pretty Mm. imposing guy, and I confided in him, Your Excellency, I don't feel like Craig and I really deserve this award and it's hard to imagine we're going to win it because, you know, everyone has this imposter syndrome Mm. and no one believes they're worthy of it. And I remember him turning around looking me in the eye and saying, saying, well, Harris, if you get the award, you'll just have to step up, won't you? (laughs) (laughs) I felt like, you know, standing at attention and, and saluting and I told Fiona that story and every time, you know, for the next year as Australian of the Year when I was feeling those doubts come back, And I'd say something to Fiona like, what am I doing here? You know, I shouldn't be this. And she'd go, well, Harris, you'll just have to step up, (laughs) won't you? And it was it was right, you know. Sometimes you just got to suck it up and get on with it. And the funniest thing is, like, from me sitting here thinking, like, oh, there couldn't have been a worthier recipient. Like, <laughs> how could you ever think that you were not worthy to receive something like that? Is just, just I, I can't fathom that. But I wonder for you, Richard, what's the best advice that you have ever been given? Wow. Uh, Oh, that should have been a question with notice because people give me advice all the time, (laughs) (laughs) mostly, including my wife. Um, I would say, look, I I don't know if it's a specific bit of advice, but just um, a sentiment, I guess, from my father um, who you might recall from our last chat, he died at the end of the Thai Mm. Cave Rescue just as that last boy came out, which... I don't believe in coincidence or anything uh, miraculous or, or deeply spiritual, but that obviously was very significant um, for me that that would happen at that time. And um, so, you know, I'd always had such great love and respect for him as a man and as a father. And the the main reason for that was the way he treated other people. You know, he would always leap to his feet with a smile and uh, shake you by the hand or, or embrace you when you would walk into his house every single time, even if you'd only been there 10 minutes before sort of mm. thing. And he treated everybody like that, whether they were, you know, the garbo or the, a professor or anyone and everyone. So um, I just thought, you know, that that is the way to live your life, to just be respectful and friendly to every person you meet and to give them a smile and a wave and try and brighten their day up a little bit. So that's not advice so much as just a, a way to live your life and that I think is what I try and and do. I don't succeed maybe even 50% of the time, but, you know, even 50% of, of the way he conducted himself is, is pretty good in my books. What is something you wish for yourself? I'm very goal-focused and I'm always thinking about tangible uh, things to achieve in my life. And yet the more I achieve, including the marathon that I did in the Gold Coast, which just about killed me, you know, every time I tick a box like that, I'm never satisfied and I'm always just thinking, right, what now, what now? Is there is something mm. more I can try? And I wish for myself just to be more satisfied with what's right in front of me, you know, right now and um, stop trying to strive for something that, you know, often often these things don't make you happier. Often they do. They keep me busy and, and mm. you know, do make me feel good about life. But, 
you know, just stopping and being more in the moment and appreciating what's around you and especially the people around you. I guess that's what I would, would wish for most. What is a life of greatness to you? To be remembered as someone who is kind and, and treated people the way, you know, that we all want to be treated. You know, I don't need my name on a on a statue or a, or a, or a great big uh, landmark to be remembered. I just want to be remembered for one generation at least uh, as a good bloke who gave life a crack and um, found a new bit of tunnel from time to time under the earth. Richard Harris, I love talking to you and thank you so much for all the work that you do and, and your new book, You Are Leaving Your Mark, and I continue to watch you leaving it for the rest of your journey. Thank you, Sarah. Always great to chat. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.